Hey, good morning, Providence. Once again, welcome, especially if you're new. Welcome here. My name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm excited to, to continue in this Life with God series and to talk about uh, a, a topic or an issue that I think is quite compelling, and that is the idea of change. That's what we're going to be talking about today, the idea of change, because I believe that we all want to change in some way, right? Like change is kind of wired in us. If you turn on your TV at all, this time of year when it's an election year, even more so when it's a presidential election year, but what are all the politicians saying when they invade your commercial time, right? They're like, hey, there's this other politician who's been doing a bad job and I'm going to come in and I'm going to change things and make it better. That's how they're pitching it to you because we all kind of want this change. Or how about individually, we're people who want change, right? Like in a couple months when December 31st rolls around, even though for the last 14 years you've tried and failed, you're going to, a lot of you are going to be like, okay, I'm really going to actually follow through on this gym membership this year. I'm actually going to get in shape this year because you want to change. And some of you are like, okay, uh, enough of eating this junk food, enough of eating McDonald's. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to do the whole 30 this time and actually go 30 days. Has anyone ever actually gone 30 days, by the way? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But okay, so I, have, I feel like I have recently experienced this desire for change because I have noticed that I am uh, maybe not the most organized person. Maybe a few of you have some emails out to me that have never been returned, and for that I'm truly sorry. But... I, I'm not always the most organized sometimes, so I'm like, okay, I got to put, put a stake down and actually change my ways. So I read this book called Do More Better. I downloaded these two apps that were going to try to organize my life, and I was ready to go because I wanted to be efficient and I wanted to be organized. Now, I don't need to tell you guys that more often than not, when we try to change, we actually... We actually fail at these things. As a matter of fact, when I got up this morning and I looked at my to-do list app, I had 13 overdue things that I should have done before the weekend even started. I failed at that. But that's not exactly where I want to go today about our failures to change. What I want to talk about is, is I want to talk about something a little bit deeper than that. And that is, why do we want to change? Why are we a people that are compelled to get better? Why Are we a people that desire some sort of change or transformation? And I'll say before I go on, I got some inspiration from this sermon from, there's a guy named Rankin Wilborn who wrote a book called Union with Christ. And some of the thoughts and a few illustrations come from some of his thoughts. I want to give him credit um, because he inspired me a little bit. But I want to start off by, by, by telling this quick story. So Michelangelo, the famous artist, um, he created this sculpture called the Pieta. Maybe some of you have seen it or heard of it before. Uh, it's the only sculpture that he ever actually signed his name on. I think he was rather proud of his work. But the sculpture is one of Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding her crucified son in her lap as he lay across her lap. Maybe you've seen it before. And in the year 1500, this masterpiece, this sculpture got installed in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So it's been there since 1500 as this work of art. But in 1972 there was this vandal that snuck in past security, got into this church with a hammer and went and just started smashing at this thing and went up to Mary and smashed and shattered her left arm and damaged her left eye and her nose and I think part of her veil and this masterpiece that once was was all of a sudden marred. It was like ruined. 
And so you have this piece of art originally created to be beautiful, and then it was only a fraction of what it actually was. And over the course of the next year, there was a team of experts that came in, and they picked up every little shard, every little sliver, every little piece, and they meticulously put these pieces of marble back together so the sculpture or the masterpiece became what it was supposed to be once again. And I think this event tells a story that I believe that we all feel inside in a way. That we were all created for greatness, or we were created to flourish in a way. That we were created to be some sort of work of art or some sort of masterpiece to be proud of, but because of the sin inside of us and the sin done to us, we are really a a fractured or marred version of what we were intended to be. And essentially whether it's December 3rd or January 1st or whenever, when we're doing things like signing up for the gym or starting that diet again or striving to be a better parent or spouse or be a better uh, student or whatever we are, essentially what we're doing is in a, we're, we're taking attempts to try to pick up these slivers and pieces and shards and trying to put ourselves back together the way that we were supposed to be. And what we're going to find in Ezekiel 36 as we look in here is that there is one way to get put back together. And you may have already guessed this, but it's not going to be through our own efforts because we don't have the ability to to do a self-salvation project like that. But God must enter into the story and do something spiritual and supernatural to satisfy this change that we all feel like we need and address this deep sense of, of being marred. And I think that if we as individuals and we collectively as a church, if we could embrace this change that it talks about in Ezekiel 36, it's going to be a lot more consistent than you actually sticking it out at the gym for a whole year. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to produce a lot more change than you actually following through with the whole 30. It's going to produce more change than any politician is promising on your TV commercials right now. And I think that it will allow you and it will allow us to start being put back together the way that we were originally designed. So today, the idea is very simple, and that is God changes us. He's the one who changes us. So let's look at Ezekiel 36. We're going to start in verse 22, where Ann just read, and we're going to look at three different movements in this passage. The first one we're going to look at is the problem, or why we need change. The second one, we're going to look at the intervention And then finally and thirdly, we're going to look at the result. So the problem, the intervention, and the result. So let's look at the first couple of verses, 22 and 23. It says this, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, God is talking to Ezekiel, and he says, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, you or which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So these verses describe the problem. And even just reading this might leave us a little bit confused because the context of what's going on here couldn't be any farther than Nebraska in 2018. This is 2,500 or so years ago. So let me catch you up 
with the context of what's going on. So God in this passage is speaking to his people, Israel. And and if you're a a Bible nerd of sorts, you may want to know that this is the southern kingdom. This is Judah that he's talking to. But he's talking to his people, the Israelites. And these people had been taken out of their own land. So picture this. The Babylonians, the mighty Babylonians had come in and they had put them, these Israelites, really in a depressed state because they had come in and they had taken these people out of their own land. And this is probably what it would have looked like. They would have come in and they would have been slaughtering their livestock. They would have been taking their every possession. These Babylonians would have been killing their loved ones right in front of them and taking them out of this land, the thing that they knew is home, the land that they knew is home, and they would have taken, away, taken them out of there and then taken them captive into their own land. Everything that they knew and loved has been taken away from them. So life was bad. I'm sure it felt hopeless and they needed some sort of change. Now enter Ezekiel. So Ezekiel was a prophet of God. Essentially, God would speak to Ezekiel and Ezekiel was like God's mouthpiece to his people. So he would communicate to his people what God was trying to say. Now, Ezekiel loved his own people. That is for sure. But He also delivered some harsh words when harsh words were necessary. In this first part, you see some of those harsh words that he has for his people. In verse 23, it says that the heart of the problem is that these Israelites profaned God's name. That's what God is telling them. He said, you didn't live like I told you to. You didn't love me like I told you to. You profaned my name. You were supposed to make me look good and instead... You made me look bad. You were supposed to show these people how great and loving of a God I am, and instead, you ruined it. You did exactly the opposite. And God said, because of that, in the first part of Ezekiel, leading up to this chapter, we're in chapter 36 here, he spent a lot of the time saying, hey, it's because of what you did that now I'm going to let you go into exile to be captured. It's a discipline of sorts. Now, there's this interesting idea at the foundation of this idea of, of, uh, of the problem here. And I think we can rewind back. And I'm going to explain this to you. We explained this in a sermon last year, and maybe, maybe you remember it. But I think it can help enlighten us a little bit. So in Genesis 127, the first chapter in the Bible, it tells us how and why we were created. It said, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, many of you have probably heard this phrase before, created in the image of God. And a lot of times when we explain it, we explain it as a thing where, um, like, uh, God created men and women to kind of be like him or to kind of look like him. And so it's kind of like a parent to a child thing that they kind of carry his attributes in a way. He created you to have some things like him, right? And I think that's part of the story of this, but it's not really the whole picture, you see, because in this context, when they heard image of God, they would have been thinking of something a little bit different. Because in the ancient Near East, there was only one person in a land that was the image of God, and that person was the king. And the specific meaning that they would have understood was that this king was the physical presence of God in the land. So when people looked at the king, they thought of it reflected back to God. 
And so if the king, as this physical reminder and as the image of God, if the king ruled over, say, this city and that city and that city and a bunch of different regions, the king couldn't physically be in all those places at once. So the king would build statues of himself and put himself in these other cities and these other regions. So the people would constantly be reminded when they looked at the king or his statue, oh, this God reigns here. It was an image of God that would point people to the God that was supposedly ruling in that day. So in order to see God, they would look at the king. In order to be reminded of which God was in charge, they would see the king. So that means when God calls us his image, he is saying that the purpose that you have as an individual, the purpose that we have as the people of God creating in his image is so that when people look at us, they see God. They're reminded of the rule and reign and the beauty and the love of God when they look at us. So when they look at me, they're supposed to say, oh, that's what God is like. Oh yeah, God is in charge here. Or they look at, look at, uh, Our church here, they look at us and they're supposed to see a community that reflects back to God so you can know that God is with us and how he he interacts and how he uh, loves and, and interacts with people. So these people, God's people, when he chose them and he set them apart, as his people, after they were in slavery in Egypt, they were supposed to be living in a way that when outsiders looked at them, they would see them and say, oh, I know their God. Oh, their God is amazing. Their God is great. And as a matter of fact, they did exactly the opposite of that. They profaned his name. And now they were in exile. And in Ezekiel 36, it essentially says that you've shattered my image. You've shattered your image. And I'm going to have to come to the rescue. Now, these themes that we're kind of picking up on, even though this is halfway around the world and it happened 2,500 years ago, they still remain the same. If you've ever wondered what God created you to be, it's to be his image bearer so that someone, if they look at you, they can see God. If they watch you interact and watch your actions, they'll say, oh, that's who God is and that's what his God or her God is is like, that's what we're supposed to do as God's people. But unfortunately, whether it's the Israelites or us, more often than not, we don't do that, right? We're people that have fallen woefully short of that. Well, what's the problem? What, what, what's at the root of this? So George Saunders, he's an award-winning writer. And uh, he, he delivered this commencement speech to Syracuse graduates uh, a few years ago, and he picks up on some ideas that I think are pretty profound. He, and this is what he said as a part of his speech. He said, here's what I think. Each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions. There's three of them. He said, these are, one, we are central to the universe. Number two, we are separate from the universe. In other words, there's us, and then there's everything and everyone out there. And number three is that we're permanent. In other words, death is real. It's true for you, but it's not really true for me. And here's what he goes on to say. He said, we don't really believe these things intellectually. We know better, but we believe them viscerally and live by them. And they cause us to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others. 
even though what we really want in our hearts is to be less selfish, more aware of what's actually happening in the present moment, more open and more loving. And I think Saunders is picking up on something here that the Bible teaches very clearly. It's that there's something that's wrong inside of us. It's that we want to do this, but instead we do this. We want to be disciplined, but instead we end up sinking back into laziness. I want to love my family or love my friends and be good about that, but instead I end up being selfish over and over and over again. I want to live a life that's for others, that serves a greater cause, and, and that really serves a purpose that advances something great in this world, but instead I find myself on my couch browsing social media again. And it draws a problem back to our hearts and our desires, that they're me-centered and not God-centered. So while it's nice to think of us being a damaged statue of sorts that has been broken up and damaged by the world and the sin of the world around us, which in part is true, the more sobering reality is that we are broken or we are shattered in the way that we are because of ourselves. It's because of our own hearts. It's because of what is actually inside of us, our own turning from God. And the Bible very clearly calls that sin. It's living in opposition to God. We are the reason that we don't look like the image of God. We've sinned to make us this way. We were actually the vandal that broke in with the hammer and broke and shattered ourselves. And we can feel it deep inside. And what the Israelites did in this moment is they, it says in the passage, they turned to idols. And if you read Ezekiel, it says they turned to other gods, they turned to idols, they turned to other things. And I think that we have the, the tendency to try and do the same thing. We feel this brokenness, and so we turn to other things to try to better ourselves. We want to get in shape. We want to get a six-pack to be accomplished and to, to feel good about ourselves. We want to do a diet and be healthy to feel accomplished in a way. We want to become a, a business owner or, or to, to climb the, the, the corporate ladder to become a CEO so we can feel like we've been successful. We want to uh, gain some wealth so we can have some sense of importance because we have money. And you know what I would compare it to? These little projects that we go on to try to put ourselves to, to, back together. If you'd imagine Michelangelo's sculpture again, I would say that these little self-salvation projects are kind of like taking this masterpiece of art that's been marred and taking like Elmer's glue in Legos and trying to put everything back together. It just doesn't work. It doesn't solve the problem. So Providence, could we be a, a people who don't live for this? we not live for these things? Could we be a people that check our hearts? And could we be honest enough with ourselves and with each other that, that we recognize these little self-salvation projects that we have to try to put ourselves back together, whether it's about increasing our own status or our own wealth or our own image or our own beauty? And could we be a people who repent of these things and stop profaning the name of God if they've become idols to us? And could we turn back to him? We need help 
as it says in this section. And so God hints in verse 22 that he's about to act. And so we're going to look at these next couple of verses. And we're going to see how God acts. We're going to see how God intervenes in us. So let's read this second section, and I call this the intervention. So let's look at verses 24 through 26, and let me read these for you. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Okay, so we're talking about the intervention here. Now, if you have uh, learned to study the Bible before and you had a good teacher, this teacher would have taught you one of the things that you look for in Bible study is a repetition. Like, do you see anything that, that gets repeated over and over and over again? As you saw this, did you see anything that got repeated? Okay, I won't ask for hands. I'll just cheat because we don't have a time to do a big group Bible study. But the thing that gets repeated over and over again is the phrase, I will. Did you notice that? That just in these three verses, he said it five times. God says, I will. And I think in our 11 uh, verse section, I think that it's mentioned uh, 12 times. I may have miscounted. It's about 12 times in that section. And so as you hear that, I will do this, I will do that, what does that tell us about who is going to be the catalyst for change in our lives? It's God, right? It's not us. It's God who's going to be doing it. He's going to be changing us. He says, I will bring you back. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will give you my spirit. He keeps saying this over and over. Now, when God's people heard these promises, imagine them in exile, taking, having everything taken away from them. It would have been like water in a desert to them. These Israelite people would have been, would have been uh, hungry to, to get back to their own land, to see their circumstances change. And God does actually promise that right here. In verse 24, he says that he will bring them back into their own land. And, and that is true, and that's a promise. And I don't know what got these Israelites' hearts singing a little bit more, but there's a greater promise that comes after that that's much better. It's an internal heart change that he talks about. In verse 25, he says, I will cleanse you. And in verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. You see, the law that God gave to his people, these Israelites, he wanted them to live this law out in order to obey him, in order to essentially live life with God. That was the purpose of this law. But the problem for these people in this time, and other times as you read the Old Testament, is they kept messing it up. They kept rebelling. They kept sinning against God over and over and over again. And God had given them this law, but the deal with the law is that it told them what to do, but it didn't actually change their hearts. It didn't affect their hearts. It didn't affect their desires because outside-in transformation actually doesn't work. We need an inside-out transformation, and that is what God is promising to do right here. And that's what he was promising to do in his people for them and for us when Jesus came to earth. So the question is, how do you change? It's by God giving you a new heart and giving you his spirit as it talks about here. The promise that God was giving 
of a new heart and his spirit coming was an intervention to a rebellious and sinful people, an undeserving people, through Jesus coming to earth and through his death, he was able to cleanse our dirty hearts that profaned his name. And through his resurrection, he was able to actually give us a new heart. And in verse 27, it says that he was able to give us his spirit. Now, Ezekiel illustrates it by saying he will take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That's what he says will happen to us when we trust in Jesus. Now, what exactly does that mean, a heart of stone and a heart of flesh? Well, a heart of stone is one that is hard, one that's cold, one that's dead, one that's uh, one that's stubborn. And then you have a heart of flesh. What's a heart of flesh like? Well, a heart of flesh is, is one that, that pumps blood. It's one that's alive. It's one that can come to life and one that, that can love fully. Now, as I say this, this may sound a little bit offensive because you might ask, okay, wait, are you saying that anyone who is not a Christian has a cold, dead heart? Like, is that, it's like a stone heart here? Well, let me clarify a little bit because uh, a heart of stone, it can come alive to things. I think a heart of stone can, can come alive and beat for things like Husker football on Saturday afternoons, or it can come alive to a football, an NFL game on Sunday. I think a, a heart of stone can, can come alive for a promotion at work. It can come alive to, uh, to coming into wealth. It can come alive to success. It can even come alive to caring for people and loving people. It can even come alive to, to working uh, together to, for like a social cause, for the betterment of our society. But what a heart of stone can't come alive to is it can't come alive to God. And it can't come alive to the things of God. A heart of flesh, on the other hand, is alive to God. Its affections are for him. A new heart that loves him. It loves what he loves. It desires what he desires. That's the heart transplant that Ezekiel 36 is talking about right here. And it's this theological idea of what's called regeneration. It's when God changes our disposition. He changes our desires. He changes our affections. He changes our loves, and he allows us to love him. Have you, ever got, have you guys ever seen that, uh, that YouTube video, maybe you saw it on Facebook, where there's this old guy, well, I shouldn't say old guy. He's a moderately aged gentleman who's, I think they said he's 66 years old, um, which is young. It's younger than my parents. I don't want to get anyone in trouble here. Okay, so this guy, anyway, let's keep moving on. Uh, this guy, he's 66 years old, and it's his birthday, and this guy is colorblind. He's never seen color before, and his family takes him outside, and they sing happy birthday to him, and they give him this box, and he opens up these glasses, and by some marvel of science, I don't know how, quite how it works, but these glasses are, uh, allow someone who's colorblind to be able to put on these glasses and see color. And so this, this guy is confused, and they sing happy birthday. They tell him to put these things on, and he looks around. And as he puts these things on, his eyes, like, start darting around. And, and he's, like, starts to shake a little bit, and he's kind of laughing, and he's kind of crying. And as you see him, like, look around, he's seeing the trees are green for the first time ever. 
And he's seeing the people in front of him for what they are for the first time ever. And he's seeing his neighborhood, how it looks in color for the first time ever. And his wife, in this video, who's videotaping, says something pretty, pretty profound. She says, now you see what we see. That gift, in essence, is what God does to our hearts. He changes us and says, now you see what I see. Now, your desires are like my desires. Now, you care about what I care about. Now, you can love what I love. Now, you can love me. He changes our hearts completely. And ultimately, as we think more toward application of how this changes us, ultimately, we prioritize and pursue the things that, you, that we truly love, right? Right? So, so think about it. I'll give you a couple examples. For me, I consistently serve and sacrifice for my wife and my kids because I have deep affection for them and because I love them. So I prioritize them. For me, when it comes to uh, Sunday mornings, I spend hours and hours writing sermons, although you may not realize that or you may not think so some weeks. But I spend hours doing that because I love you guys, and I love Jesus, and I want you to understand what God wants for you. On Saturday afternoons, I actually, I love Nebraska football, and so I will prioritize three and a half hours to be able to sit and watch a game. You prioritize what you love, and through the regeneration of our hearts, God has changed what we love and what we desire. And in verse 27, that's why he says that he will cause us, his spirit will cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules, because a changed heart will become changed actions. I think at this point, it would probably be beneficial to do a just a little self-assessment and ask, what do I pursue and prioritize? Like, not what do I say I prioritize, but what do I actually do? What do my time and money say? What would my friends say that I pursue and prioritize? Because a regenerate heart and God's spirit inside us should be helping us live for God and live life with God. It should be consistently changing us, making us more and more into a reflection of God's image. And I want to talk about just the last verse in this section to talk about what is the result of this change. So I want to look at verse 32, and it tells us really the foundation or the direction that this is going. So look at verse 32. It says, it's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let, it, let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So at, at the foundation of all this change, the point of all of it, it is said, it's said first in verse 22, now it's repeated here, and he says, it's not for your sake that I act. And in verse 22, he follows that up by saying, but it's for my holy name. So what God is trying to challenge these Israelites with, and what God is trying to challenge us with this morning, is the why. It's why do you want to change? And God answers that in verse 32, the why he wants us to change, why he intervenes for us, and he answers it by saying, it's for his sake, not for ours. 
When we truly want to change with a new heart, it will be for his sake and not ours. Now, that's a little bit hard for us to understand in an individualistic, fairly me-centered culture. But the purpose of us changing, of our hearts being regenerated in this masterpiece being put back together is so that we will glorify him, so that we will point back to him, so people will see us. And because of that, they will see God. So I think first we got to ask when we're thinking about change, whether it's wanting to be a better person, whether it's wanting to be a better spouse, whether it's wanting to be a better parent, whether it's wanting to get in shape. Maybe it's, uh, you know, things we call Christian things like wanting to live on mission better, wanting to be a, a better student of the Bible or a better teacher of the Bible. We have to ask ourselves, are you doing that? Are you pursuing that change for you to look and feel good? Or are you doing it for God's sake? Is it for our sake or for his sake? Because God changes our hearts. He changes our desires. He puts his spirit in us so that we will glorify him, so that we can be his image bearers. If you think about a masterpiece like the Pieta that got put to put together, when you look at that sculpture, you don't look at it and say, wow, Mary really killed that sculpture, didn't she? No, you say, Michelangelo is an incredible artist, right? That's what God wants to do when he restores and redeems and puts us back together. So Providence, if you're a Christian in the room, I want us to wrestle with this very practically. Are we a people who are continuing to change? Have we seen our our lives ultimately change trajectory in Jesus if you are a Christian? And have you begun or continued to grow to walk in his ways, to walk with him, to walk in his statutes, as this said? Is that what's true? As I thought about this passage all week, I really wrestled with it because I'm like, man, if it really is this much of a, a transition, if we really do go from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, if we really go from not having God inside of us to having his spirit inside of us, we should look completely and utterly and radically different from the world around us, right? And as I thought of that, I'm like, man, if I were to look back over the last week, if I were to look back over the last month, I'm not sure that I could say that about me. I'm not sure other people would say that about me. And if not, could I suggest that that maybe we've taken this new heart and we've taken God's spirit inside of us for granted. And we've uh, essentially taken off our our color-seeing glasses and we've put them aside and we've settled for black and white. We've settled for these self-salvation projects of change, which in and of themselves most of the time aren't bad. But we've put our hopes in these little self-salvation projects of, of, of changing for our own fame, for our own beauty, for our own image, for our own success, for our own wealth. And when we do this, we don't experience true and deep, fulfilling heart change. We only enslave ourselves to these little self-salvation projects. And if you're there, I think the Spirit of God inside of you is prompting you to recognize those things, to turn from those things, to repent from those things, and, and, and run to Jesus. Invest your soul in, in running after him and, and get life from the very words that he gave us in the Bible. 
He's, he's prompting us to, to run into Christian community where we can know other people and be known and experience God in community. He's, he's prompting us to, to spend daily, regular, intimate time with him in silence or prayer or meditation. He's calling us back to himself to live life with God so his spirit can continue to change us. If you're not a Christian in this room and you're a person who longs for change, Maybe the change that you really long for, you haven't really been able to manufacture that on your own. Uh, could I suggest that maybe God may be grabbing your attention today and saying, hey, I want to give you a new heart. I want to put you back together the way that you were created to be. I want to help you experience a deep change, the purpose that you were initially created for, to be an image bearer of me, to change me. Consider that this morning. Now, in a second, we're going to take communion. But before we do, um, I want to say, uh, I know there's some people in here who are really practical people who love a lot of the practical, and we didn't hit on a lot of that. But I want to say just two next steps for you. Could you guys all make it a point to get out to a city group this week? Because some of the practicalities of what this looks like to change, we're going to handle those things in city groups. And then the other step is, could you come back next week? Because next week, Andrew is going to be talking about an aspect of change that is uh, encompassed in Christ giving us freedom, freedom from slavery, freedom from addictions, freedom from these self-salvation projects that we have. And so if you really want to work this out, could you dive further in by getting to a city group and coming back next week? Um, this morning, it's good news that, that God has changed us, that he wants to continue to change us. And and we want to reflect on that act that he did to change us by taking communion this morning. So I would love to invite the band and the communion servers up here right now. And what I want us to, to remember, we take communion here every week and we constantly want to be reminded of what Jesus has done. And the reality is, as you get ready to walk forward, as I would um, invite any uh, Christ follower to do this morning. If you are a follower of Christ, be reminded that we were a people who were running from God and we had a heart of stone and that only by Jesus' death and resurrection were we able to change directions and to, to turn toward him, to love what he loves, to desire what he desires and to be able to, to really change completely. That character, that life that he's changed in you is only because of how he has intervened and that began and was finished on the cross through, it, through Jesus' death and resurrection. So, as you come forward if, as a follower of Christ, would you remember that? Would you thank God for that? And if you are someone who's here in the room and you're not a Christian, uh, I would love to invite you to remain seated and maybe think about that. Maybe think about, is God inviting you to experience this life with a new heart this morning. And maybe he's inviting you to pray to him this morning and ask uh, that very question. So with worshipful hearts, as the band leads us, uh, could you come forward and take communion? There's a gluten-free option in the back. Could we worship Jesus as we reflect on his work for us together?